Hi, and welcome to the Wonderful World of Disney Villains podcast. I'm your host, Katie, ready to talk about everything Disney. Hey everyone, to continue on with season two, I thought I'd try my hand at an entire episode dedicated to a specific character. Which character, you may ask? Why, Cruella DeVille, of course, because if she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. One of the most challenging Disney villains to find redeemable, but also, like, you know, Disney's new Cruella movie was released this summer, so guilty plug and reason to watch it. I should probably point out that there will be spoilers to the 101 Dalmatians movies, the TV show Once Upon a Time, and the new Cruella movie. So I wanted to start with some fun facts for those of you who may not be as familiar with Cruella DeVille, and apparently I'm not as familiar with Cruella DeVille either because didn't know some of these. Uh, according to the American Film Institute, Cruella DeVille is one of the greatest villains of the past century. She was number 39 of 50 on the 100 Greatest Heroes and Villains list, and was one of only three animated characters on that entire list. To give some reference, she was one spot before Freddy Krueger, and about five spots before the Joker from Batman. She was after Darth Vader, the man who killed Bambi's mom, Snow White's evil stepmother, the shark from Jaws, the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, among others. If that gives you some reference on, or any context on why Cruella DeVille is number 39 to 50 best villains of all time, you're welcome, and also please tell me because I have no idea how they calculated that. According to The Independent, quote, in 2002, Cruella was the only female to make it on the Forbes fictional 15 rich list, with an estimated fortune of $875 million, end quote. That's a lot of money. She is also listed in Empire Magazine's The 50 Best Animated Movie Characters as number 16. Empire Magazine said she is a stroke of genius in her unique approach to keeping her two henchmen on her side while also constantly slapping, threatening, and berating them for their failures. And I mean, I know it's not funny, but you kind of have to applaud her for that because, you know, that's not easy. And also, these men need help. They, they need to find a more safe and supportive source of income, like ASAP. Something new that I found out, Cruella is the first female villain in Disney to go up against a male protagonist who is Pongo. Other movies like Sleeping Beauty have a battle of a female villain against a male hero, but the male character is not the lead character of the movie, like with Pongo and 101 Dalmatians. And to be honest, I don't know if we should be thankful or upset since the first female villain against a male pair-up is a female against a male dog, and she lost. For a good reason, though. So I'm a little conflicted about that decision, uh, but I guess we gotta start somewhere, right? Cruella's character design also inspired future characters like Madame Medusa from The Rescuers, Dr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog, and Yes from Ralph Breaks the Internet. Cruella DeVille is also a primary member of the Disney villain franchise and the subgroup franchise Disney's Divas of Darkness. Try saying that five times fast. Also shortened to Disney Divas, DDD, or Disney's Bad Girls. The last one I didn't really know about, I, I'm technically the resident Disney villain expert, but I didn't know Disney's Bad Girls was an actual subgroup name. Cruella DeVille also has her own anthem. I can't think of many other Disney villains where the song is both about them and they don't sing the song. An example would be Gaston. He has a song about him, but he sings half the song. 
so I don't really count him in this comparison or in this um, example. I'll link the song in the episode description in case you want to listen to the original version. I know there have been lots of renditions of the song since, like in all of the future movies of 101 Dalmatians, and also I think Selena Gomez has a rendition of the song too that you can check out. So for those of you who don't know, Cruella DeVille is the Disney villain in 101 Dalmatians. To put it as short and simple as possible, 101 Dalmatians is a movie and book about Dalmatian puppies being chased by Cruella because she wants to kill them, turn them into a fur coat. Now, did you already know that about Cruella? Because somewhere through history and all the remakes, for whatever reason, that fact seemed to have gotten lost. And it's literally the plot of the movie. So let's go together through Cruella DeVille's history, and I'll explain. So Cruella DeVille first appeared as a book character in the 1956 children's novel 101 Dalmatians by Dottie Smith, followed by a sequel, The Starlight Barking, in 1967. I will admit, I haven't read either book, I just read the summarized version. The sequel, The Starlight Barking, only briefly mentions Corella. The Dalmatians basically go to visit her, assuming she committed something, but turns out she's a victim like everyone else, and that's basically the only time we we know that she's in the book. And one thing I think is important to note about the 101 Dalmatians book, 101 Dalmatians is a children's novel, which I emphasized earlier, and yet the book described Corella as a much darker and more demonized version than all future adaptations of the character. And hey, maybe that's because it's, you know, Disney who took on that adaptation and all of the future adaptations, but I guess we'll never really know. According to Time.com, Cruella had a captivating entrance from the start. The book says, quote, she was wearing a tight-fitting emerald satin dress, several ropes of rubies, and an absolutely simple white mink cloak, which reached to the high heels of her ruby red shoes, end quote. Mrs. Deerly also remarks that she knew Corella from school and that she's supposedly been, quote, expelled for drinking ink, end quote. Super gross. <laughs> and it's actually an interesting rumor. I don't think I've ever heard of someone being rumored to have been expelled from school for drinking ink. We've all heard rumors about the kid obsessed with glue, right? So I guess that would be a similar comparison. Different times, I guess. This rumor also comes back in the TV show Once Upon a Time, where she literally at least looks like, from the angle, looks like she's drinking ink. And I will explain more on that once I get to the Once Upon a Time section later in the episode. In the book, Corella was married to a furrier, aka a fur dealer, the book seemed to hint that she didn't marry for love and instead married for the occupation. She loves furs. He handles furs all the time. Match made in heaven in Corella's mind. Corella also insisted on keeping her last name DeVille. She said she was the last living family member with her name and insisted on her husband changing his last name to hers. Again, I haven't read the book. I'm just relaying the research from those who did read the book. Thank you, time.com. Keeping your last name seems to be becoming more common now, or hyphenating is also another thing that people have been doing recently, but in 1956, like, I hardly doubt it. But I, also, I don't know how European social norms and traditions were back in the 1950s, so I guess I can't really say that as factual, right? I'm also making the geographical assumption because all the movies take place in Europe, so I'm assuming we're talking about Europe with the book as well. Uh, the book also talks about Corella's family history, which I don't think any of the Disney adaptations, aside from the most recent Disney Plus movie, mention, like, literally at all. 
Corilla's family, and obviously Corilla as well, own the estate named Hell Hall, which is where the Dalmatian puppies are held hostage in the book. I don't think they emphasize the estate name in the movies though, but it is definitely an estate. There are variations of the estate in future movies, and the book specifically talks about the town rumors that Corilla's ancestor bought the estate and did some questionable things there. Villagers also said they were scared of the estate, and Corilla's ancestors referring to them as if they were the devil. And maybe because of this and other reasons, Corella in the book is also rumored to be like the devil herself. She's constantly cold. I think most of the movies take place during winter time, so just like super convenient. Uh, so she's constantly cold, stoking fires for warmth. She's always wearing fur, coats, gloves, etc. She smokes and is always surrounded in a cloud of smoke because of all of her smoking. And the part I thought was interesting, she makes all her food extra spicy to the point others who taste her food say it just tastes like hot peppers. This is specific to the book. Now, Aside from the physical appearance, the fur coats, the gloves, the cigarettes, her backstory and most known information about her seems to be lost in all the movies. Uh, maybe that's a Disney thing. We already know she's bad. We don't need to keep making references to the devil to explain she's bad in front of children. I mean, that's not, that's not really a good message to send to kids, right? The character Corella DeVille seemed to be heavily inspired by actress Tallulah Bankhead for both the book and animated movie. And numerous sources, author Dottie Smith, Mark Davis, who is the animator who designed the animated Cruella DeVille for the movie, and Betty Lou Gerson, the voice actor who played Cruella DeVille in the animated movie, all mentioned Tallulah Bankhead as a partial inspiration to create, design, and act as the character. And from what little I read online about Tallulah Bankhead, Tallulah had an alcohol and drug addiction. She was reported to have smoked over 100 cigarettes a day and was open with the public about her opinions, addictions, and opposition to her own family's opinions. Which does, you know, kind of sound like Corella DeVille. Rebecca Cope said, quote, It was during these years that another one of the traits that links her to DeVille emerged. Her penchant for driving her Bentley around London at breakneck speed, much like the Disney villain behind the wheel, end quote. Because Corella is known to not be the greatest driver ever. Sources also said Tulula had self-destructive behavior and was a camp icon. Her sexual exploits with both men and women were publicly known to all, although she called herself ambisextrous instead of bisexual. Some great takeaways from Tulula Bankhead's life, because it's not all quote-unquote destructive, right? Sources say Tallulah always voted in the U.S. presidential election, even if she was abroad. She would purposely travel back to the U.S. just to cast her vote and then head back to wherever she was, which I think is amazing. She strongly opposed racism and segregation and openly advocated against it and all presidential candidates who supported it. That's amazing. In 1961, the book was adapted into the Disney movie what we know as the 101 Dalmatians animated movie. And as just mentioned, Betty Lou Gerson was the original voice of Corella DeVille and the first person to play Corella DeVille. Betty Lou Gerson was also the narrator in Disney's animated Cinderella movie, which I thought was really interesting because if you listen to both, they sound like vastly different people. Or like the tone and the narrator's obviously narrating a story. And then Cruella DeVille has all these highs and lows and emotions and tones. And yeah, I just felt like Disney was really holding her back <laughs> with the Cinderella narrator. Independent said Disney also brought in Mary Wicks 
to do the physical acting for animators to draw to. Wicks, quote, towered over her peers at a gangly 5 feet 10 inches. Wicks captured Cruella's flamboyant physicality on film, the swirl of her coat, her thrown back head, her wild gesturing with an improbably long cigarette holder, giving the animator a human frame of reference, end quote. And according to Time.com, the animated 101 Dalmatians movie was the first movie at Disney Animation to not be hand-inked. It was also one of, if not the first, movies taking place in a modern era. I believe all the previous movies they made took place decades or centuries earlier, while 101 Dalmatians took place in the present day. And it may have contributed to the people's interest in the movie, the overall success of the movie, and the time and money saved from not inking everything by hand. Cruella DeVille was also set to be the villain of the Rescuers movie, but Disney scratched the idea and instead created Madame Medusa, who shows a lot of similar physical traits, interests, and characteristics to Cruella. Instead of wanting furs, though, Medusa wants diamonds. Instead of wanting to put puppies in harm's way, Medusa abducts a little girl with the intention of putting her in harm's way. Very dark. Anyway, 30 plus years later, in 1996, super long time, Disney decided to make a live-action 101 Dalmatians movie with Glenn Close as Cruella DeVille. In this adaptation, Cruella DeVille is the fashion CEO of her company, the House of DeVille. I think this movie really changed people's perspectives of Cruella to be more of a fashion icon, an independent businesswoman, a feminist icon, etc. Thinking, specifically thinking of quotes like, quote, more good women have been lost to marriage than to war, famine, disease, and disaster. You have talent, darling, don't squander it, end quote. And I don't know why or how, but there are people in the world who don't fully know the plot of the movie, which is that. Cruella wants to kill puppies and make a fur coat out of them. But they do know Cruella DeVille, her unique fashion, campy personality, and the memes of her words and tantrums and, you know, screaming at men. <laughs> uh, which isn't, you know, all bad. In the live-action movie, Cruella doesn't have family that we know of, and they are never mentioned either. She's just kind of a one-woman show. Uh, she has no husband, no family, no partner, no kids, and she lives alone in a giant mansion with a personal assistant who I think is afraid of her. She does yell at the poor man literally all the time, always in front of somebody else. In the live-action movie, Cruella's relationship with Anita is different. Instead of being classmates and friends like the animated movie, Cruella is Anita's boss. I think in the book, Cruella was only a classmate who Anita was not very well acquainted with. In the live-action movie, Cruella is very fond of Anita. She's always complimenting her work, talent, saying, Oh, Anita, you're the best. Please don't leave ever because you make such amazing fashion choices. And then Anita gets married, takes some time off work. So Cruella visits Anita's house saying, I miss our day-to-day -day interactions and receiving your sketches through mail or, or I guess email or something. Roger, who is married to Anita, tells Cruella that, spoiler, Anita is pregnant, and <laughs> Cruella says, quote, oh, you poor thing, I'm so sorry, end quote. Which is another thing that people had mentioned as well, like that specific meme. Cruella then takes a huge turn later when Anita tells her, you know, you cannot have our Dalmatian puppies, they're not for sale. Even after Cruella offers a huge sum of money in exchange, Cruella gets upset, storms off saying Anita is fired, and that's kind of the end of their relationship. And one thing that I thought was interesting that I never noticed about Cruella until talking about Cruella and Anita is the polar opposite reaction to conversations, interactions, etc. between 
Corella and men. I'm thinking in particular Horace and Jasper, her henchmen, Roger, Anita's husband, her assistant, Alonzo, and just any other person that she encounters who is male or appears to be male. As an example, Corella is always criticizing Horace and Jasper. She finds very little faith in them, accomplishing even the simplest of tasks. Like Empire Magazine mentioned earlier, all she seems to do is slap, threaten, and berate them. And from the beginning, Corella also doesn't seem to like Roger and looks down on him. She criticizes how he can manage to support Anita with a job as a video game designer. Similarly, in the animated movie, she shows... I would say the same feelings for Roger's occupation as a musician. And like I mentioned earlier, Corella constantly yells at and gives disapproving looks to her assistant. So these men, they need to stand up to her and, and leave their jobs. Well, Roger doesn't work for her, but the other men need to leave and do something else. The only man she has somewhat of a common positive exchange with is Mr. Skinner, who is her furrier and someone who can't talk. Now, if you recall earlier, I mentioned Corilla's husband in the book was a furrier. I feel like Mr. Skinner may have been a play on the book's version of Corilla's husband, a character that was completely cut in the animated movie. And according to Jasper in the live action movie, Mr. Skinner had a bad interaction with a dog who essentially ripped out Mr. Skinner's vocal cords so he could no longer speak. Maybe that's why he became a furrier. He had a traumatizing experience as a child, literally left him with no voice, so he decided to be a furrier as an adult and work for Corella, who shows massive appreciation for his work. I should probably also mention that in the book, Corella's husband doesn't really say much. So that's kind of another reason why I kind of connect the two of them a lot. And animal cruelty is much more front and center in the live action movie than the animated one. It implies skinning animals with the news reference to the Siberian tiger going missing and Corella later receiving a present of a skinned Siberian tiger from Mr. Skinner. The movie also shows all of Mr. Skinner's tools multiple times, even showing where he skinned animals. You can see dead animals hanging from a ceiling. Corella herself doesn't skin or kill any animals, but she likes the real fur. And I'm curious if she can tell the difference between real and not real furs and I, mean, I guess maybe that's just because i don't have that experience i don't know if there is a huge difference and she's not seen the process to get the fur to know what's going on and what mr skinner does but it seems like she approves of it um i don't it's such an awful thing and i, I don't know how he sleeps at night but i guess both her and mr skinner seem okay with the idea of animals dying for corella's fashion wardrobe choices still awful, but there were and probably are people who still like real fur and real leather, so it is a very real topic and real conversation to have that this movie brings. Corella also has the popular quote listing ways to kill the puppy, so I guess she's more than okay with it. She says the exact quote word for word in the animated and live action movie. If you watch them back to back, you'll notice. Okay, don't like talking about animal cruelty, so I'm moving away. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Um, we can't talk about Corella in this particular movie, the live-action movie, without also talking about fashion. In the live-action movie, Corella is in the fashion industry, a CEO of her own fashion company. The animated movie didn't imply she worked in or was invested in the fashion industry, only furs and diamonds. In the live action movie, Corella's outfits were made from award-winning designers, and actress Glenn Close was not able to sit down once in the costumes. Vanity Fair said the crew had built a dresser on wheels to roll out to her so she could get out of her costume and corset quicker. Which I have to applaud her on this because I had no idea 
and was not able to tell by watching the movie that her outfits were so restricting because she does sit down quite a few times throughout the movie so that really surprised me and i'm also not super into fashion in the fashion industry so i don't really have much else to say about fashion and Cruella's outfits than that so sorry Cruella's iconic look always involves some kind of black and white outfit with something red to pop this could be her famous long red cigarette holder be red nails lipstick a red accessory like shoes a purse hat gloves etc Cruella always had her black and white hair black and white panther deville car there are only a couple times in all the movies Cruella isn't wearing or affiliated with black and white colors and fabrics very few and at the end of the live action 101 dalmatians movie and its sequel which i'll talk about in a bit Cruella is in mostly red clothes with bits of black before being defeated by the dalmatians I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it is, you'll be able to notice because usually she's mostly in black and white and then all of a sudden she's in mostly all red at the end. So you should be able to see the difference. Now there are some differences between the animated and the live action movie that I wanted to mention, but there's also quite a lot of similarities. A lot of the things Cruella says is word for word the same in the animated and live action movie. Quotes like, quote, I live for fur, I worship fur. After all, isn't there a woman in all this wretched world who doesn't? End quote. And the quote that all the ways to kill animals that I mentioned are a few of the quotes that are said in both, word for word. In the animated, it's a bit uncertain how Cruella decided she was going to use the puppies to make a fur coat. She literally shows up, we're introduced to her as a character, and classmate of Anita's, and Cruella is saying, where are the puppies, with the intention to, quote, buy them. It's not revealed until after the puppies are abducted, like 50 minutes into the movie, that Cruella hints at what she wants with so many Dalmatian puppies, which is the fur coat, which she doesn't explicitly say, it's implied. It's like hinted at. So you kind of assume, but you don't know for sure because she doesn't actually say it out loud. Or maybe she didn't, I missed it. In the live action movie, Cruella finds inspiration to make a fur coat out of Dalmatians once she sees Anita's drawing of an outfit inspired by Anita's Dalmatian dog, Perdita's spots. After talking to Anita about Dalmatian spots, their fur, spots, etc., Cruella learns Dalmatian puppies have fine hair, whereas adult Dalmatian dogs have somewhat coarse hair. So that's why Cruella goes after Dalmatian puppies. In the animated movie and live action movie, Roger, who's Anita's husband, stands up to Cruella and tells Cruella the puppies are not for sale. Animated Roger believes Cruella kidnapped the puppies even after Scotland Yard aka the police, investigate her home, whereas live-action Roger and Anita don't believe Cruella would have done such a thing. And there's also no mention of her being investigated as a potential suspect until later when Anita remembers her drawing of a spotted coat. In the animated movie, Cruella, Jasper, and Horace were in a car accident, leaving them stranded at the end of the movie, so we don't know if they're arrested or not, we don't know what happened to them, whereas in the live-action movie, all of them and Mr. Skinner are arrested, which may also be why Jasper Horace and Mr. Skinner don't make appearances in the sequel. Corella's sassy and campy personality are the same in every remake, using pet names like Darling and always adding in references to fur, diamonds, materialistic things. I think of her as the ultimate rich lady who enjoys living in luxury. I like that the live action shows her as someone who seemingly worked for her money, whereas the animated one doesn't show or even hint that Cruella had worked or may be working at all. 
It just seems like she inherited everything, which also leads me to assume that she always had the wealth. In the live action, it, you know, you don't know because she is a businesswoman. Live action Corella is like your everyday CEO businesswoman, which I just said. But I find it hard to believe it should be considered socially normal for an adult woman to throw a tantrum and scream at people because they won't let her, quote, buy their newborn puppies. And I guess we can assume that she's super entitled and maybe maybe she did inherit a lot of money and she always was in wealth or something. I don't know. But her entitlement is like overloadingly huge. I mean, when you're the boss and everyone has to listen to you and you're super wealthy, I guess it is a possibility. From these movies, Corella went on to make appearances in the animated TV show House of Mouse, which is a TV show about all the Disney characters together in a dine-in theater of sorts watching Disney clips. She was also in the 101 Dalmatians TV series from 1997 to 1998, which I believe was also animated, and it came out right after the live-action movie, so it's kind of like 101 Dalmatians was coming back. After that, Corella was essentially the star of another 101 Dalmatians movie called 102 Dalmatians in 2000, which was a live-action movie taking place after the first live-action movie, so this is a sequel. So to give you the rundown, because not as many people are familiar with 102 Dalmatians, 102 Dalmatians takes place with Corella being released from prison following the first movie. So, spoiler... If you haven't seen the live-action 101 Dalmatians movie, she does get arrested. Which I think I actually just mentioned, so I probably spoiled it twice. Oops. A doctor was... Ex- I, don't, I don't really understand this. So, somehow, they let a doctor experiment on Corella, a psychological, I think, doctor, on Corella while she was in prison, thus, quote, curing her need and love of fur coats. And killing animals. The doctor did multiple animal experiments turning predators and prey into best friends. So like a fox and a duck, Corella and puppies, you know, you get the idea. And so essentially the experiment works both on the animals and on Corella. Corella is released from prison on parole because she says she will never kidnap dogs or kill dogs again. And the court judge says if she does do this again, she has to pay eight million pounds to dog homes across Westminster. So she leaves prison a very different woman, changing her name to Ella, and locking away all her fur coats and the picture of her wearing Dalmatian spots from the first movie, which was the inspiration. She also starts volunteering at dog shelters, washing dogs, playing with dogs, all the things, right? So Corella, now Ella, goes to visit her probation officer, Chloe, who adopted Dipstick, who was one of the original Dalmatian puppies from the first movie, part of Pongo and Perdita's pack. Is that is that correct? I don't even know. I'm sorry. Dipsick remembers Corella because, you know, she did kidnap him. And now he has puppies of his own. So when, quote, Ella hears Big Ben's clock chime, her, quote, cure of fur coats goes away and she becomes batty Corella DeVille again. Now knowing about Dipstick and his family, she's out to kidnap the next generation of puppies and make a fur coat, but this time with a hood. So she needs more puppies. So now we're basically back to 101 Dalmatians again, or like the plot essentially, except this time Corella doesn't have Jasper and Horst, only her personal assistant Alonzo, who she always yells at. And Corella finds a way to put all the blame on one of the dog home shelter owners and makes it look like he was framing her so she'd have to pay them and all other dog homes the eight million dollars, which actually I think everybody found out really quickly that when you look at all the dog homes in Westminster, there's actually only one. 
So she finds a way to frame that one specific dog shelter owner to make it look like he was trying to make it look like she was kidnapping puppies. Actually, she is, though. And so then he ends up going to jail for, quote, trying to frame her. And one of their animal friends helps him escape prison. He goes straight to Chloe. They follow Corella to Paris and are captured by the guy Corella hired, Jean-Pierre Lepelt, who seems to be like the male version of her, where he's like super into furs, super into fashion, and he finds her, he finds Corella as his inspiration for like everything. So one of the puppies doesn't have her spots yet, so the puppy nappers ignore her, kind of toss her to the side, so she is able to help everyone escape. Corella's personal assistant also has had enough and doesn't like all the pain and trauma he's endured, so he helps everyone escape too. Corella ends up chasing the puppies to a bakery, ends up falling in the bakery, turning into a cake. The police arrest Corella, and Corella's fortune goes to all the dog homes, as was mentioned earlier, which is really just the one, which is great actually because they were running out. So it worked out. Happy ending. And I mean, really, this movie is a continuation of 101 Dalmatians. A lot of similar things happen, but this time in 102 Dalmatians, Corella is able to trick others into thinking she loves puppies because she was essentially experimented on to love them and then snapped out of it. So I doubt the sequel would have happened if people weren't captivated by Corella DeVille. It's, I would say, essentially her movie, even though it may not seem like it. In 2002, Disney made a sequel to the animated movie, remember the 1961 animated movie, called 101 Dalmatians 2, Patches London Adventure. Corella was the main antagonist once again, and then in 2014, which is like, what, 12 years later, Corella DeVille appeared on the TV show Once Upon a Time. So I'm not going to explain the 101 Dalmatians 2 movie, but I am going to explain Once Upon a Time. And specifically because I think the show Once Upon a Time took a really interesting turn with Cruella DeVille that intersects with the story of 101 Dalmatians and the book, but also includes so much more than other versions of Cruella ever did or ever could. Just kind of experimenting with what, what she could have done, what would have happened, what are her possibilities, and what is her falling. So I do want to ex- explain that. So that is where we're going now. So Corella DeVille first appeared in season four of Once Upon a Time with reoccurring guest appearances in seasons five and seven. If you remember earlier, I mentioned the original 101 Dalmatians book and that rumor that Corella drank ink. Drunk ink? Drank ink? Drunk ink? And was expelled from school because of it. In this show, Corella accidentally, or looks like she accidentally drinks ink which drastically changes her appearance to what we know her to look like now. So I'll explain. In, let's see, so this is going to go out of order if you watch it, but it's in chronological order of her life. So Once Upon a Time will show you bits and pieces, like from the future, from the past, from the present, and then me explaining it now is when you compile all of that together in chronological order. Okay, so let me start from the beginning. So season four, or sorry, sorry, let me start from the beginning of Corella's life. That was a better way to say it. In season four, we as the audience are introduced to Corella DeVille as a, quote, troubled young girl. Her mother's words, not mine. Corella is trying to run away and is chased by her mother's Dalmatians. She seems to be pretty young at this point too, like, oh gosh, maybe like five years old or so, five or six. Corella grows up locked in the attic with no radio, books, or any form of object or entertainment to keep her company. 
One day, a journalist named Isaac visits Corilla's mom, and Corilla overhears him looking for a story. He questions Corilla's mother about her now three dead husbands before being kicked out of the house. Corilla gets his attention from her attic window, and he finds a way to get the key that unlocks her attic bedroom so she can sneak out. Corilla and Isaac go out, drink, and dance together. Corilla tells Isaac about her lonely and isolating upbringing, explaining she believes her mother locked her in the attic with her Dalmatian dogs ready to chase Corilla down if needed to prevent Corella from telling others Corella's mom killed all three husbands. Isaac reveals he has a magic ability. He can write anything with his special quill and ink and it'll come true. He gives her diamonds and an ability, the power of persuasion, so she never feels defenseless again. Afterwards, Corella's mother visits Isaac and says he has it all wrong. Corella poisoned her dad, saw her dad die, seemingly liked it so much she killed the next two husbands. Corella's mom didn't know what to do about this and didn't want to commit Corella to an asylum or anything like that, so she locked her in the attic. Corella finds her mother and uses her new power of persuasion on her mother's Dalmatians, forcing or persuading the dogs to kill her mother. There's a lot of killing in this. Corella's power is visible, so it's a, her blowing green smoke from her mouth with the animal inhaling it and obeying her. Sources say the green smoke is a reference to Corella constantly exhaling green smoke from smoking cigarettes in the animated movie, so you can make that connection. Isaac finds Corella and she admits she likes killing and that she did lie about the story. She tells Isaac her mother is now dead and she shows off her new Dalmatian coat she made from her mother's Dalmatian dogs. Talk about dark, right? Uh, this one, she does all the dirty work herself, and she enjoys it. So Isaac quickly realizes what he did and the power he gave her. Corella and Isaac fight for his magic quill and ink by playing tug-of-war with the two items. The inklet is open for some reason, and Isaac accidentally lets go, so Corella essentially dumps all the ink on her face or down her throat. I don't, I'm not really sure which it is. And then when Corella turns around, she has the black and white hair, the dark eyebrows, the makeup, you know, what we know Corella to look like. This is magic ink she dumped on her face. So I guess anything is possible. Um, if it gives her a makeover, I guess, yeah. Uh, it did seem kind of like a weird story plot. Isaac is able to write down one sentence before she comes up to him, which is, quote, Corella Deville can no longer take away the life of another, end quote. When Corella gets her gun, she is unable to shoot him. Enraged, she vows revenge for taking away the thing, or I guess action, that she loves most, which is killing. Super, super dark. Later in life, Corella is working with Ursula and Maleficent in the Enchanted Forest. Uh, I would say they're also friends. They seem to hang out together all the time. Corella and Ursula accidentally get sucked into a portal that takes them to our world. Corella said she used a dragon egg that transported with her to stay young for years after. Which I don't really know how she got to the Enchanted Forest, because essentially she's from our world anyway. Then she went to the Enchanted Forest, which is the fairy tale land, and then somehow came back, right? She marries and lives a rich life until her husband is arrested and all their possessions are taken. Ursula and Rumpelstiltskin invite her to return to Storybrooke with them to bring Maleficent back from the dead. Corella agrees, and while in Storybrooke, shows very destructive, impatient, and materialistic behavior. <laughs> She's often mentioning her love of diamonds, furs, gin, and of course we know her to be a reckless driver. She did bring her car with her. There is some conflict with Snow White and Prince Charming and Isaac, uh, who is also still young and in Storybrooke. Corella ends up dying 
she was the only one of the only villains who was not redeemable in the tv show Corella ends up dying being pushed off a cliff she was threatening a child's life in front of his mother so while it's not a good thing i also can't really blame the mother for doing anything necessary for the safety of her child especially when said child was held at gunpoint by Corella. This was also before everyone found out Corella can't kill anyone and really was only bluffing. And then in season five, the heroes go to the underworld, you know, Hercules, Hades, all of them. While looking for someone who died and helping numerous other individuals move on, they have several encounters with Corella, who is still in the underworld with unfinished business. People talk to Corella about making up for her wrongs by doing good deeds, saying, you know, like, you can move on to a better place if you just do some good things to right the wrongs. And Corella always dismisses them, saying she likes being bad and could never see herself trying to be good. Like I mentioned earlier, the TV show seems to imply Corella was born and raised in our world, then somehow transported to the fairy tale world before accidentally, you know, coming back to our world. Since her revenge was always against Isaac, I feel like maybe she was tracking him and following him her entire life. I don't know how, but who knows really, right? This version of Corella is also always in a form-fitting outfit with a giant fur coat and lots of jewelry. I remember seeing her in black leather pants once with a giant fur coat. I think she only wears black, white, and red. Uh, I could be mistaken though. Corella in this version also has a lot of cheeky one-liners. She always insults Prince Charming, who is Snow White's husband, but she kind of also always compliments how good-looking he is in the same breath. When she's in the underworld, she hooks up with Prince Charming's twin brother a lot, calling herself mommy around him, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny and also grosses a lot of the other characters out. In the TV show, Corella is one of the few villains audiences get to know who is not redeemable, like I mentioned earlier, who I would also say doesn't want to redeem themselves. Usually a lot of the villains on the show want to be redeemable, like they want to redeem themselves, but she's one who doesn't want to. And I'm not including episodes where a villain-coded character is in a couple episodes and we don't get to know their backstory. Examples being the witch from Hansel and Gretel, Jafar, Captain Blackbeard, Prince Hans, etc. They're in a few episodes, but we don't actually get to know them and their backstory in depth. So I don't count them and on the journey to be redeemed. Many villains the audience does get to know are redeemable. I would say most, actually. Ursula, Maleficent, the Queen of Hearts, the Evil Queen from Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, Captain Hook, the Wicked Witch of the West, etc. Characters like Cruella Deville and, spoiler, Peter Pan and Gaston were not redeemable. And I guess we didn't really get to know Gaston, so it's probably not a fair mention. Uh, maybe someone like the Black Fairy is a better mention. Anyway, then we have the Disney Channel original movie, Descendants. Cruella DeVille herself is not really in the movie all that much. Descendants is a movie about the children of Disney characters. So Cruella DeVille's son, Carlos DeVille, R.I.P. Cameron Boyce, is one of the four main characters of the movie and trilogy series. The other children being Maleficent's daughter, the Evil Queen's daughter, and Jafar's son. It kind of seems like every Disney character only had one child and named the child by combining both parents' names together. In this movie, Cruella Deville treats her child like her servant after all the villains are banished to an island. She also raises him to be afraid of dogs for some reason, and there is speculation she is losing her cool after being banished for 20 years. I mean, I, mean, I guess I get it. No diamonds, no fur, no luxury. It's um, speculated that she is losing her cool because she is often seen talking to a toy on her jacket, which is what sources say, not me, because that can be totally how she kind of keeps organized and everything else. 
Oh, I should also mention, this is the first time that Cruella DeVille is played by a, I'm assuming, a seemingly black actress. Usually Cruella DeVille is played by a very pale person or wears makeup that makes her appear to be very pale. So this is the first time where Cruella DeVille is played by a black woman and has a white passing son. In 2019 to 2020, there was a new animated show, 101 Dalmatian Street, which takes place 60 years, 60, after the original animated movie and TV show. Apparently, there was also a 101 Dalmatians musical from 2009 to 2010. I was not aware of either of those until this episode, so yay. (laughs) More things to watch. And then... We have the new Disney Plus original movie, Cruella, starring Emma Stone as Cruella DeVille. And I've already done an episode about this movie on the Black and Yellow podcast back in June when it first came out, so there will probably be a lot of repeat from that particular episode if you have listened to it. Uh, if you haven't yet seen Cruella and don't want spoilers, I suggest pausing here and coming back after watching the movie. If you're okay with spoilers, then please listen and hopefully I'll be able to give you a bit more insight before watching the movie or deciding if you want to watch the movie. So I'll create a pause here to let you decide. Okay, welcome back if you're coming back after watching the movie, and hello again if you decide to continue listening to the episode. So the movie supposedly takes place before the live-action 101 Dalmatians movie, starring Glenn Close. Glenn Close was a producer for the Cruella movie, in case you wanted to know. And I say supposedly takes place before the live-action 101 Dalmatians movie because I don't know if it's confirmed, it's more assumed. The animated movie takes place in the 1960s, while the live-action movie takes place in the 1990s. The movie Cruella takes place in the 1970s and is a prequel to the 101 Dalmatians movie. Quite nearly impossible to be a prequel in the 1970s for a movie that's based in the 1960s. So it makes sense to be a prequel for the live-action 1996 movie, showing a young Cruella growing up in the fashion industry and eventually becoming her own fashion company CEO, like the live-action movie, right? Which is another thing. The animated movie does not imply Cruella works or wants to work in fashion, whereas the live-action movie shows she owns the company and likely had to work her way to the top. Think women in the workforce in the 1980s and 90s. Not easy. To me, it makes sense to assume the movie is a prequel to the live-action movie, but let me know if you think or learn otherwise. This movie is also a new and different take on Cruella, kind of like how Once Upon a Time gave Cruella a backstory and story beyond the 101 Dalmatians movie, so I will try to give a somewhat brief summary of the movie, but I can already tell you it's not going to be brief. There's just too much to talk about, and I fully intend to interrupt my summarizing to talk about as much as I can. So Corella, whose real name is Estella, was born with poliosis. Poliosis is, quote, a condition that causes a white patch or patches to appear in a person's hair, end quote, according to Medical News Today. It happens when there is a lack of a pigment called melanin in the hair follicles. CBR.com mentioned it was interesting that Estella's poliosis was symmetrical and went right down the middle of her hair instead of having white patches all over her head as the poliosis definition describes. It's never explained why her poliosis is symmetrical in the movie, but then again, it is a movie and her symmetrical hair is iconic. And you know, maybe that's just one giant patch, which is half her head. I don't know. Estella grows up somewhat of a rebellious child, or a rebellious child in regards to how the 1960s 
define rebellious. And she's also someone who loves fashion. She's strongly opinionated, independent, and doesn't care what others say about her, which is, you know, the reason why others believe her to be rebellious. She fights off bullies, ignores the school dress code, and is sent to the principal's office more times than can be counted. The name Corella, in particular, is a nickname Estella's mother gives her, or gave her, every time Estella was being, quote, rebellious, to encourage Estella to try and fit in with her peers. Estella is always told Corella, aka her intelligent, independent, and therefore assumed rebellious side, is a villain and needs to be hid away from others so they don't see that side of her. These moments set up future scenes in the movie where she's completely Estella one day and completely Corella the next day, hair and makeup included. I can also see how these scenes on the surface may not seem problematic because we're literally just watching it to be entertained, but they are completely problematic in real life. Adding to the fact that this is a mainstream Disney movie and a movie about a villain, it becomes even more problematic because it shows kids, don't be like this person who is coded a villain, don't have anything remotely close to a personality disorder or emotional instability because that's how villains are shown to be. Hence why we have this podcast, right? And other forms of media. So, Estella is a sweet and kind child who does her best despite what the world throws at her. She adopts a stray dog she encounters at school and stands up for her classmate, Anita. Yes, the same Anita from the 101 Dalmatians movie, who is also played by a black actress, which I do like. They don't all have to be and look exactly like all of the previous appearances. Corella, on the other hand, is vengeful, selfish, and some have said demented and enjoys causing others pain. Now, I'm not a mental health specialist or an expert on the best practices to support your child as they navigate mental health. I think Estella's mom did the best she could. It was the 1960s after all. I just wish she either did more or changed her parenting on the Estella versus Corella practice method. Yeah, if we could even call it that, right? I mean, Disney could have been a little more progressive even if the time wasn't. I mean, it's a fictional movie about a woman who will eventually want to murder puppies for a coat. We should be able to bravely assume anything goes at this point. And to add on real quick, this movie is literally trying to redeem a puppy killer. So like, can we be more supportive and promote less harmful tropes regarding mental health? Please and thank you. Okay, so mom and Estella moved to London after withdrawing Estella from school. Estella and mom talk of their plans for a new life in London and mom stops at a gala party at Hellman Hall Estate to talk to a friend for financial support with the new move. And at this point in the movie, I have no idea what mom does for a living. So Estella promises to behave and stay in the car, channeling Estella, not Cruella, but soon breaks the promise when she sees the high fashion choices everyone who is arriving is wearing. She goes inside, sees a fashion runway for the first time, and falls in love with the fashion world. She gets caught by a man named John, a somewhat important character to remember later. Three Dalmatian dogs chase her and her dog Buddy through the mansion and outside. Estella sees her mom talking to a lady and hides from the Dalmatians. The Dalmatians continue running past Estella. Estella hears a high-pitched whistle, and the Dalmatians jump on Estella's mom, knocking her over a ledge and off a cliff. I know, right? Didn't really seem believable watching it, but it it is a movie. I guess anything can happen. And I mean, mom was far enough away from the ledge. She could have just been knocked on the ground on her butt, not over the ledge and off a cliff into rocks and water and and dead. But it's a movie and we gotta keep thinking of it in that way. And Estella needs a motivator to keep the story moving, to keep her moving forward, as sad and tragic as it may be. 
So Estella witnesses all of this, runs away, dropping the family heirloom necklace her mom gave her moments before, jumps into a truck that happens to be driving by the estate. The truck happens to travel to London, where Estella gets off and finds Regent's Park, a place her and mom were planning to visit. She wakes up the next morning having slept in the park and meets two young thieves, Jasper and Horace, and their one-eyed dog, Wink. The police chase all the kids, including Estella, so Estella and her dog, Buddy, run after Jasper and Horace to their hideout. Stella tells them her mother just died. Jasper is empathetic towards Stella and convinces Horace to invite her into their group, saying it would be beneficial to have a girl in the group to act innocent and get even more money. And then I think we jump ahead about 10 years in the 1970s. The group Stella, Jasper, Horace, Buddy, and Wink have a routine schedule and routine plans for stealing. Stella designs the costumes and they each play a part in the scheme to steal. Jasper notices Estella keeps looking at billboards and signs about the Baroness, a CEO, fashion designer, and company. So on Estella's birthday, Jasper gives her the present of an entry-level job at one of the Baroness's clothing stores. So Estella starts working as a cleaner, janitor-type role, and she constantly is asking her boss about being promoted to a seamstress or anything related to using a needle and thread. One day, she becomes drunk while cleaning after hours and remodels the front window display. She wakes up the next morning hungover in the window display and gets scolded and fired. And the Baroness literally walks in moments later praising the window display and wanting to know who decorated it. The Baroness offers Estella a job designing clothes for her, and Estella starts working there, I think, the next day. Estella promises herself to channel Estella and not Corella to make her mom proud, which is a reoccurring thing that happens, I will say. So while working for the Baroness, we learn the Baroness takes all the credit for the designs her employees make. She instantly takes a liking to Estella's fashion designs, and it really doesn't seem like she likes anything else. Estella starts becoming close to the Baroness, doing more personal assistant type tasks at times. The Baroness gets as close to complimenting Estella as, well, I guess she's capable of by saying, quote, you're something, end quote. One day, Estella is with the Baroness when she notices the Baroness is wearing the family heirloom she dropped years ago when she watched her mom fall off the cliff. Shocker. Estella asks the Baroness about it. And the Baroness says it's her family heirloom, and her former housemaid stole it from her. Estella then realizes they were at the Baroness's house that night, and her mom was asking the Baroness for financial support before being pushed off the cliff. Estella tells Jasper and Horace, and they make plans to steal the necklace back at the next gala, a black and white attire gala at the Baroness's estate, Hellman Hall, the place Estella's mother died. Estella does research on the security camera, staff, etc. to find out every detail needed for their crime. Estella decides to go to the gala as her Corella persona, because the Baroness doesn't like sharing spotlight, and Corella is good at being in the spotlight. Also is different enough from Estella where maybe people won't see the resemblance. Maybe. And so Corella being good at being in the spotlight will catch the Baroness's attention while Jasper and Horace get the necklace. Sounds easy enough, right? I probably should have mentioned that Estella dyed her hair red ever since meeting Jasper and Horace. To be a different person, aka Corella, Estella dyes her hair back to her natural color black and white and then wears a red wig to work the next day as Estella. This is where Corella and Estella start to become two different characters in the movie. Very different fashion choices, hairstyles, makeup, all of it. All of it's very different from each other. 
So long story short, the plan backfires and they are unable to get the necklace. Everyone thought the Baroness had the necklace in her safe, but she decided to wear it to the gala. When chaos ensued, Cruella was able to remove the necklace from the Baroness's neck, give the necklace to her dog Buddy, but then Buddy was chased by the Baroness's Dalmatians, and one of the Dalmatians accidentally swallowed the necklace. Not overly realistic considering the size of the necklace, but, you know, movie. So that's what we go with. Cruella and her crew steal a car to make their getaway escape, and that's when we see Cruella's awful and iconic driving ability. Cruella also mentions she's never driven before, also can't drive, so you know, it kind of makes sense. Cruella recalls the high-pitched whistle sound she heard right before her mom died and the same sound she heard at the gala party. She connects the Baroness's dog whistle, used to give her Dalmatians commands with her mother being pushed off the cliff, confirming the Baroness commanded the Dalmatians to push Estella's mom off the cliff with the dog whistle. Now, Corella slash Estella wants revenge for her mother's death and enlists Jasper and Horace for help. Corella also asks classmate Anita for support, who is now a photographer and journalist, and a friend named Artie, who is a vintage fashion store owner and designer. The overall plan is quite long and elaborate. Corella and team are behind the scenes designing clothes, upstaging the Baroness at fashion shows, while Estella is close to the Baroness as an uncredited assistant and designer. Jasper and Horace kidnap the Baroness's Dalmatians, and they take care of the Dalmatians until the dog poops out the necklace. There is a point in the film where the Baroness suspects Estella is Corella and her assistant John, the guy you know who caught Estella when she was little, when she crashed the fashion runway, tries to persuade the Baroness that they are not the same person. I don't know why. So after Corella's most elaborate plan succeeds, the Baroness spots Jasper and Horace and has them followed. When Corella gets home, all of them are tied up and the Baroness learns about Corella and Estella and her plan to get revenge on the Baroness for killing her mom. The Baroness sets the house on fire with Corella in it. She frames Jasper and Horace as the ones who set the fire, so they'll go to jail for killing Corella. However, someone saves Corella and she wakes up to find John, the Baroness's assistant. There should have been a content warning for this next bit, and probably the entire movie if I'm being completely honest. John tells Corella that she is adopted. The Baroness is in fact the person who gave birth to her. I feel like that scene alone should have been a double news drop. In a flashback, the Baroness is called a narcissist, and upon finding out she's pregnant, secretly orders John, her assistant, to kill the baby once the baby is born. John instead gives the baby, Estella, to the Baroness's maid, Catherine, who names Estella and raises her away from the estate in secret. Now, Psychology Today says a narcissist, quote, is characterized by a grandiose sense of self-importance, a lack of empathy for others, a need for excessive admiration, and the belief that one is unique and deserving of special treatment, quote. Quote, it encompasses a hunger for appreciation or admiration, a desire to be the center of attention, and an expectation of special treatment reflecting perceived higher status, end quote. I didn't fully understand the need to kill baby Estella. I think the Baroness mentioned she didn't want a baby getting in the way of her career and success, but as a rich career-driven woman, wouldn't she have like a nanny or someone else to look after baby Estella anyway? Like, she could have given baby Estella up for adoption. I don't know why the Baroness resorted to the worst possible outcome. Uh, oh, actually, I do have a theory, uh, but being narcissistic almost seems like an excuse for her behavior, in my opinion, saying like she was a narcissist and then that's why she wanted to kill you. And it's not necessarily used as the reason for how she treats everyone in Baby Estella, but it seems implied to me that she wouldn't be as much of a villain if she wasn't a narcissist. I'm not saying being a narcissist is like 
inherently bad and makes you a villain but it seems like they're kind of pushing that idea that like she wouldn't really be a villain if she wasn't a narcissist i don't even know if she was diagnosed they just say that she is so it's just kind of like an assumption but i mean based on the description of what a narcissist is the baroness does fit that description so my theory is that the baroness wanted to kill estella because the baby would inherit the estate not the baroness so that's my theory so now this next scene brings up a lot to discuss. So prepare. <laughs> Be prepared, to quote Lion King. So Cruella goes to Regent's Park, the place she uses as a place to talk to her deceased mother, kind of like uh, visiting a grave, we can say. She tells the fountain of the news she found out. She says a few things along the lines of, I guess that's why you're always trying to get me to be sweet and kind to Stella rather than Cruella, just look at the Baroness. She uses some problematic language like psycho, being brilliant and a bit mad. She also hints that she may have inherited the psycho from the Baroness and decides to embrace being Corella and ignore Estella. Multiple sources and articles about the movie mention the movie created a personality disorder story arc, treating Estella as one character and Corella as a completely separate character to make Corella, the one we know from 101 Dalmatians, a redeemable character. Estella slash Corella being someone who may be living with a personality disorder or what is formally known as or named a dissociative identity disorder is not confirmed nor denied in the movie because Estella slash Corella is not diagnosed and none of these sources to my knowledge are medical professionals who can diagnose patients or in this case characters of a movie. The American Psychiatric Association says dissociative identity disorder, previously named multiple personality disorder, includes, quote, the existence of two or more distinct identities or personality states. The distinct identities are accompanied by changes in behavior, memory, and thinking. The signs and symptoms may be observed by others or reported by the individual, end quote. The American Psychiatric Association also mentioned, quote, the symptoms cause significant distress or problems in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning, end quote, and, quote, is associated with overwhelming experiences, traumatic events, and or abuse that occurred in childhood, end quote. They go on to mention the attitudes and personal preferences may suddenly shift and shift back. Quote, the identities happen involuntarily and are unwanted and cause distress. People with dissociative identity disorder may feel that they have suddenly become observers of their own speech and actions, or their bodies may feel different, like a small child, like the opposite gender, huge and muscular, etc. End quote. And again, I'm not a mental health professional or someone who can diagnose another person, or in this case, a character. After reading what everyone was saying about Corella having a personality disorder and the movie using the, the disorder, so many S's for me, <laughs> to create the movie plot, I had to do some surface level research to know what everyone was talking about, hence the American Psychiatric Association. So in this scene, Corella basically says she inherited the Baroness's psycho behavior and is embracing it. The language itself is problematic and insulting to those living with different mental illnesses and disorders. I read a bit from Digital Spy that I thought was worth mentioning about this, quote, There are some mental illnesses that can be genetically linked, but even then there's no predetermination and there are other illnesses that are less easily pinpointed. The field of mental health is one that is always evolving, course correcting, and adapting to the world we live in. Disney flies in the face of all that, though, and those seeking to argue that the movie lands firmly in the nature and nurture camp ignore Corella's own agency. She clearly and explicitly decides that she is going to embrace her, quote, genetic path of 
quote, psycho behavior. For Disney to state with such a blasé attitude that all of Corella's evil is simply inherited from her mother is the epitome of lazy stereotyping, end quote. And while I don't know if all the facts are correct, I think they're right. Throwing everything at a separate personality or charade as another person and saying Corella is redeemable because it wasn't her, but her living with a mental health concern or illness is villainizing mental health. On the surface, it may not seem that way. It may just look like Estella is having fun, pretending to be someone she's not, or, you know, getting to embrace who she really is and having that freedom of being who she really is behind a facade. But when you do the research and analyze the movie, you see the moments and sentences where it's implied there's something more there, in this case, mental health. Hence the movie blaming Corella's behavior and future behavior on mental health. I mean, if we had more positive tropes of mental health, it may be different, but having tropes like the Joker, Corella, and others not really faring well for non-harmful mental health tropes in movies. So that's why it's not the greatest. And as the American Psychiatric Association mentioned, the individual living with dissociative identity disorder is also associated with overwhelming experiences and or traumatic events. What is defined as an overwhelming experience or traumatic event is different for everyone. For some, being separated from their birth parent, whether known or unknown, can be a traumatic event that adoptees are unable to process or find support for until much later in life. As an adoptee myself, I feel it is my responsibility to bring awareness to the problematic and harmful family and adoption tropes in Disney. I personally have never heard or read anyone discuss this topic, and maybe it's just because others don't know about it yet, so I thought I would talk about it here. And I have already talked about this specific topic on the Black and Yellow podcast episode about the Cruella movie, as well as on my personal blog, www.thedisneyvillainscholar.com. I'll include links in the description in case you want to listen or read the full details later on. So to give some context and history, most adoption narratives show adoptees as either the hero, someone who overcomes a great evil or system to help their community. To be Disney-specific, think of Hercules, Luke and Leia Skywalker, Pinocchio, Tarzan, etc. You could also add in Harry Potter, Superman, Jon Snow, Annie, and many, many more. Or adoptees are represented as the opposite, a villain or troublemaker who defies authority and societal norms, maybe seeks power because of their lack of agency and or having challenges with mental health or processing emotional trauma and lacking the support services and resources to help navigate their experience and past trauma. Think Loki, Jessica Jones, Scarlet Witch, I like to think that Scarlet Witch was adopted by the Avengers, Magneto, Credence Barebone from Fantastic Beasts movies, and lots, lots more. So some people may find, or some people may also view these tropes as those who are able to accept their adoption and being understanding of the reason they were separated from their birth parents versus those who are unable to accept their adoption and feel abandoned or unwanted by their birth parent because of the separation from them. A lot of the adoption narratives that we've seen are also surprises where the adoptee did not know they were adopted until much later in their life, and it seems to kind of fill the void that they were maybe had felt their entire childhood. Sometimes, not all the time. And for Estella Corella, I think she switches between the two binary tropes throughout the movie. When she is feeling guilty about her mother's death, she strives to be the best person she can be for her mom. Literally the driving point of the story. It's her motivation to be the best she can be and pursue fashion without challenging authority or the rules. And then, you know, she switches, which 
is what I was just talking about earlier. The problem with Disney's representation of Estella and Cruella as an adoptee is the language used, the parent-child dynamics and relationships, and the very brief mention of adoption, and then total disregard of adoption for the rest of the movie. So let me explain some examples. So with language, when Cruella finds out she's adopted, she says, quote, my real mother and other mother, quote, implying that the Baroness is the real mother, her mother who raised her is the other mother. This is super problematic language. If we look at the context of the time period, it can be overlooked because adoption stories and language were not as well known or common, but it still emotionally impacts people who witness it, even if on a screen, especially because the mother who raised Cruella Estella is the one that she loves and wants to be with even though she's passed away. She doesn't want to be with the Baroness. She finds her to be a villain. So the fact that she says the Baroness is the real mother, not the mother that she even wants, is makes it even more hurtful. And I would say like my mom, who is an adoptive mother, I call her mom because she's the one who raised me, would find that line super heartbreaking as an adoptive parent because it implies she's not the real parent because she didn't give birth to me. And in particular, I read a comment on an article that was spoiling the movie where the commenter said, quote, Dalmatians killed her mother who isn't really her mother because she acts like she was, end quote. Oh, and that really was like, I wanted to punch that person. <laughs> I don't find a lot of adoption related language and jokes to be offensive or triggering, but wow, that particular comment hit me really hard. And I think it hit me hard because Catherine who's Estella's mother, raised Estella, cared about Estella, loved Estella, and seemed to be the only person Estella cared and loved in her life. You know, supported Estella, didn't care about Estella's rebellious behavior, all the things. And this commenter goes to say Estella acts like her mom is her mom when she's not because she didn't give birth to her. Like, real example of problematic language that was posted in 2021, like a couple months ago. The other example is the, oh, you're secretly adopted and your mother did not give birth to you, and then total disregard for that huge news drop, the rest of the movie, is telling me that Disney threw in the idea just to spice up the script. I get some adoptees don't identify as being adopted, or maybe they don't want to talk about adoption, but adoption is much more than a way to create a plot twist, and yet that's all it ever seems to be in film. I mean, look at Jon Snow, for instance. Same thing with like Superman, same thing. There's so many, right? It's like surprise, Hercules, like surprise, you're a god. Didn't, <laughs> didn't tell you, sorry. And it's like for filmmakers out there, you should not use adoption specifically just as like that plot twist. It needs to be more because it is more in real life. And it can be harmful to only ever use it as that where adoptees may feel like if their life is not like that, then what is it, right? I think also discovering that Estella was adopted, her discovering that she was adopted, I mean, that her birth mother tried to kill her at birth, and that her birth mother killed her own mother is a huge driving force in the behavior expressed and the decisions that Estella and Cruella make. I'm sure we can all agree with that, whether or not it was because of an adoption-related narrative, revenge or vengeance, wanting to make her mom proud or other, we won't know. Estella and Cruella may also not know. A lot of new information presented itself in a short amount of time. It's a lot to process and she'll likely continue to process it for the rest of her life if i'm being honest if you want to learn more about this particular topic i am planning to release an entire episode dedicated to disney's adoption narratives next month so stay tuned so back to the movie corella breaks jasper and horace out of jail apologizes to them for being mean and a bully as corella 
as she should, and then visits her friend Artie, the vintage fashion store owner-designer, for help with her next grand plan. They all get to work making outfits for each attendee at the Baroness's next event, making each attendee a Corella-inspired black-and-white outfit. John is able to steal a list of all the attendees, which I'm assuming included addresses and dress sizes, because otherwise how would everything have fit and worked out perfectly? It is a movie, so I guess it's a movie magic, right? While everyone is getting ready for the event, Corella slash Estella and Jasper have a heart-to-heart, implying that maybe they could be something more in the future. Digital Spy reminded me Corella brings up, quote, growing into her, quote, genetically predetermined psychosis, end quote, to Jasper in the scene as a joke. And while we should be able to joke about things, and they were trying to have a lighthearted conversation the way the rest of the movie laid out mental health before the scene doesn't really imply it should be a joke. Uh, and I probably could have said that a little bit less intense, so I apologize. But I'm not going to re-record it. If this was the first time that it was being mentioned, yeah, totally. Problematic, but joke. But the fact that this is multiple times makes it not only problematic, but super harmful and not a genuine joke anymore, in my opinion. But that's my opinion, right? I analyze movies. This has been mentioned so many times in this movie. I've already mentioned it before. The idea of genetically inheriting a mental health illness disorder and embracing and reveling in the chaos that ensues because of it shouldn't be a joke, in my opinion. And as far as I'm aware, not all mental health illnesses or disorders are genetic. But again, I'm not a mental health professional, so I do admit that. And not everyone wants to embrace or revel in the possibility or guarantee of having to live with a mental health disorder illness for the rest of your life. I mean, how many people do you know who have a mental health disorder or illness say, yeah, I want to have this. I want to experience life with this. I want to always check that box. I just don't... I don't usually witness that. But again, I'm just one person. I don't know every single person in the entire world. So I just think it's uh, problematic. But again, though, I'm overthinking. Mainstream Disney movie that is viewed by millions of people all over the world will all interpret the movie the same way as me. I think art reflects life. Life reflects art. And it's worth having a conversation about. It's worth talking to children about who watch this movie, consume this, soak it up like a sponge, even if it was only intended to entertain. That's just my opinion. Anyway, Estella lures the Baroness out of her own party to the exact ledge where Estella's mother fell years ago. They have a a supposedly heart-to-heart conversation about the Baroness now knowing who Estella is, Estella knowing about her birth story, the Baroness admitting that she gave birth to Estella years ago. The Baroness claims she cares about Estella, knowing that Estella is so brilliant because she, the Baroness, gave birth to her. Kind of made me want to roll my eyes, but... It is the Baroness we're talking about. While the two are talking, the rest of the team is escorting all the attendees outside. So Horace, Jasper, John, Artie. And they line everybody up a safe distance away where Estella and the Baroness can be seen. But the Baroness doesn't know that they're all there watching them. So Estella and the Baroness hug, supposedly making up. Then, of course, the Baroness pushes Estella off the ledge and off the cliff. Everyone gasps, and the Baroness discovers everyone saw her push someone and kill them. The Baroness makes excuses and is arrested soon after because Estella had previously called the police to make sure that they were on the scene. So they just happened to show up. However, 
spoiler, as this whole however many minutes has been, Estella is still alive. Having expected and anticipated the Baroness to do just that, Estella created parachute pants or parachute skirt for herself. Estella pulls up to the mansion as Corella, while the Baroness yells that Corella and Estella are the same person. Corella tells everyone that Estella, the rightful heir to Hellman Hall Estate, signed her entire fortune over to Corella Deville right before falling off the cliff. How convenient. While the Baroness goes to jail, Corella Deville, named after her new car, Panther Deville, become well, I'm not sure if it's called Deville, but that's how it's spelled, becomes the new owner of Hellman Hall. Corella, Jasper, Horace, Artie, and the dogs, including the Dalmatians, all move in with the help of Assistant John and discover one of the Dalmatians is pregnant. The end shows them attending Estella's funeral and Corella changing the estate name from Hellman Hall to Hell Hall. The end credit shows Anita and Roger finding a puppy on their doorstep, a Dalmatian puppy, with a tag from Corella saying the names of the puppies Pongo and Perdita, so kind of setting it up for 101 Dalmatians. Which, when you think about it, seems a little sick that Corella was like, here, here are the puppies, and then ends up trying to steal Pongo and Perdita's puppies. I don't know. It, uh, it'll be weird. And that's the entire movie, technically. I heard there's going to be a sequel. Don't know how that's going to go, but uh, we'll see, right? And I will probably do a different episode about the Corella movie and the non Corella character moments and tropes because I do think they are worth discussing. This is a mainstream Disney movie redeeming a super popular Disney villain that is available and seen by millions and millions of people by the time this episode comes out. So, based on all the interpretations and varieties of Cruella DeVille, which Cruella DeVille is your favorite? Did you even know about all these different Cruella DeVilles? Because I didn't know about all of them. What do you like about Cruella DeVille? Or what do you not like about Cruella DeVille, other than the fact that she wants to kill puppies? For me in particular, Cruella DeVille is a, what I call a guilty pleasure villain to watch on screen. She's theatrical, she's stylish, she's unapologetic, confident, she's a super hardcore feminist, and she has so much agency to go after her own goals, desires, and interests. On the downside, she likes to kill animals for fashion and is obsessed with killing Dalmatian puppies to create a spotted coat. Hence, guilty pleasure villain. Let me know your thoughts about the episode and Cruella DeVille. If you like the episode and the podcast and are on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating. I truly value feedback and would love any recommendations for future episodes. Did you like the guests on the podcast? Do you prefer solo episodes? Please let me know. Also, if there's a topic about Disney you just haven't heard anywhere else and are looking for a deep dive on the topic, please DM the podcast on Instagram at www.ofdizvillains or on the website www.wonderfulworldofdisneyvillains.com. I'll also include links to those in the description. You can also find me, Katie, on Instagram at Scholar and on the Black and Yellow podcast available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 